This Bee Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. Loved and trusted by more than 1 million teachers, IXL enhances your teaching and takes work off your plate, so you can make an even bigger impact on your students. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K through 12th grade curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable real-time insights. Strengthen daily instruction, close knowledge gaps quickly, and set every student up for success. If you want to bring IXL to your school, you can learn more at IXL.com backslash B-E. That's IXL.com backslash B-E. We're proud to be sponsored by MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Schools can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, activity periods, RTI, therapy, and teacher appointments, and much more. With its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, MyFlex Learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com backslash BE to learn more and receive $500 off the first year. That's myflexlearning.com backslash BE. This is Dr. Karen, and you are listening to the DeFacto Leaders Podcast, where I help pediatric therapists become better leaders so they can make a bigger impact with their services. On this show, I'll share up-to-date evidence-based practices, my own experiences, and guest interviews designed to help clinicians and educators feel more confident in the way that they serve their caseloads so they can help school-age kids grow up to be successful, kind, well-adjusted people. Hey everybody, it's Dr. Karen, and welcome to episode 96 of the DeFacto Leaders Podcast. Today, I am so excited to share an interview I did with a special guest, Brianna Wagner, a school psychologist from California. We start off the interview getting into some misconceptions about what school psychologists actually do. And then Brianna also shares some of her experiences around sharing information online, specifically on Instagram, but it's a really interesting conversation surrounding, you know, sharing information with the public and just knowing how to handle some of the interactions that you may have online while doing that. We also get into some topics related to common practices in the school systems and how to work with your team. One of the things that comes up specifically is the strategy of whole body listening, her thoughts on it, and what we can do instead to help kids to advocate for themselves and also have strong communication skills. And then we have a great conversation about bilingualism. Specifically, it starts with me asking her the question of, should we be encouraging kids who are bilingual to only use English? So obviously, you can probably guess her what her answer to that question was, but it really sparked a great conversation about this topic, about her experience learning Spanish and how to navigate different cultures and dialects, as well as how to respect 
people's culture. So I loved the conversation. I loved where it went. I think it can be really helpful to people who are working with bilingual students who are working with culturally and linguistically diverse populations, as well as just people who want to share information and advocate for their profession. So I hope you enjoy the interview. Before we get going, I wanted to talk a little bit about a resource that I have for pediatric clinicians, specifically something that is going to help you if you work with a team, which is a topic that we talk about in this conversation. One of the biggest challenges that school clinicians have specifically, whether it's psych, social work, um, SLP, counselors, occupational therapists, is just the caseload size and the amount of time that they actually have for direct services and also trying to figure out how to help the other people on the team understand how to support kids once they're not in those sessions. And one of the biggest challenges is is finding out how to meet as a team, get on the same page. So that means we have to be really creative with how we utilize our time, how we share our resources, and how we create tools that can share our clinical knowledge with others so that we can all work together to support kids. And the way that I do that is through a concept that I refer to as asset stacking. And so I've created a free guide to walk through how to do this, as well as some examples of assets that you can actually stack. So to download your copy of that free guide and learn how to use this method to make a bigger impact on your caseload, you're going to want to go to drkarendudekbrannon.com backslash generalization. Again, that's drkarendudekbrannon.com backslash generalization. For now, we will get to the interview, so please enjoy this conversation with Brianna Wagner. Today, I am joined by Brianna Wagner, a school psychologist from California. So thank you so much for being here with me today. I'm so excited. Thanks for having me. So I thought we could just get started by having you tell us a little bit about yourself and, you know, what what you do. Great. Um, I am Brianna. I'm a school psychologist. I'm actually also a licensed educational psychologist. So in California, you can get a license to practice privately as well. I haven't started my private practice at all, but I have that ability. Um, I was a former teacher. I taught kindergarten for a few years and then met my first school psychologist as a kindergarten teacher and you know, fell in love with the idea of becoming a school psychologist. And I've now, this is my sixth year as a school psychologist, and I absolutely love it and decided to create an Instagram account in um, April of this year and just have been sharing my knowledge and connecting with all different educators and parents through it. And so you've grown it pretty quickly then if you just got started. Uh, Yeah, I mean, I... You know, I've always kind of treated it as uh, a second job, I guess. Mm-hmm. It was. It started off as just, you know, like I was studying for my um, private license and I was like, you know, I really want to take this seriously and present myself as someone that not only has, you know, good information to share, but is really trying to make connections with other people. And so um, I've always, you know, made an effort to get to know different professionals in the education field, but also parents and um, different you know, community members and 
definitely put a lot of time and effort into it and sharing information with everybody and learning too. Yeah. What made you choose Instagram as your means for communicating information? Well, I've always kind of um, spent a lot of time on Instagram, I guess. And so I, you know, I, that's the platform I was most comfortable with as Mm -hmm. like my personal account. And I had seen, I think in April, I had seen like maybe a couple, um, school psychology accounts, but definitely a lot more of teacher accounts and speech Mm -hmm. language pathologist accounts. And definitely there were a a few good school psychology accounts, but I was like, you know what? I think that there's like a need and I can add to this conversation. Um, So yeah, I was, I was ready to join the other school psych accounts and make a little space on the internet for myself too. Cool. Yeah. I love that. I think that sometimes people feel like they would like to do something as far as just educating and advocating, or even the networking aspect, you know, like, I think that people don't realize that with social media, it's not always just about posting things online. With Instagram, for me, I use it more of a means to just see what other people are doing and connect with people, you know, and that's, that's how I use it. I know a lot of people get a lot of, you know, share a lot of information through Instagram, but, but yeah, that's, I think that sometimes people feel like they want to do something and they don't know where to start, you know? Yeah. And I, I've definitely thought of it in a similar way as you just described. It's like more for me about connecting with other people and definitely don't come on there thinking like, come to me for all the answers. It was more just to, as a way to start a conversation. I also, (laughs) um, maybe, I don't know, selfishly is the right word, but, you know, as school psychologists, a lot of people have no idea what we do. And Mm -hmm. so I felt like I was always kind of explaining to my friends and my family what I did and they didn't necessarily really get it. But now with my account, I can share all the wonderful things that school psychologists know about and can do and have that conversation, not only with other educators, but my family and friends too. And they know so much more about it because of this account. Yeah. Well, that's, that's awesome. I was actually having a conversation with someone the other day who was talking about, you know, their child was going to this, the school psychologist was doing some sessions you know, with their child. And they're like, well, the psychiatrist is going to come talk to my child. And I was like, that's not the same thing at all. I mean, obviously there's some overlap there. So do you find that people get those two disciplines confused, like psychology versus psychiatry versus school psych versus educational psych? Like what are some things that people, (laughs) what are some common things that people get wrong about what you do? Oh my gosh, I can spend hours telling you about this. <laughs> but yeah, definitely like when they call me a, a school psychiatrist, I'm like, wow, you just gave me like a whole title upgrade. Because <laughs> I, you know, obviously you have to go to medical school for that. <laughs> but yeah, you, the usually like psychiatrist, school counselor, um, you know, any sort of like mental health role, like therapist in general just lots of confusion. And I mean, I'm never, obviously never like offended by any of that. I think those different areas are so important and like, it's flattering that like, you know, to be confused for any of them, but you know, I just use it as like a, an education 
opportunity to say like, no, actually a psychiatrist is someone that goes to medical school. They prescribe and monitor medication. That's not my role. Here's what my role is. And I'll just clarify that way. Mm-hmm. What's your what's your quick and dirty way of explaining what a school psychologist does to somebody who doesn't have background in special ed? Yeah, that's a good question. So usually, I mean, you can go deeper in it, but it's just, I, when I talk to kids, it depends on who I'm talking to. When I say it to kids, I don't want to get like too deep into it. So I just Mm -hmm. say, you know, usually it's the way I pitch it is like, I help the teacher, your teacher, make sure you're learning as best as you can. And if you need any help, we help, I help figure out what supports you need. Mm -hmm. That's kind of my very general kind of kid friendly version of it for parents. A lot of times I try to figure out for adults and parents, like what, concept they already have of a Mm -hmm. school psychologist and then go from there. Like if they think, oh, you do testing for special education. And I could say, yes, that is part of my role. And I'll go from there and, you know, say I'm heavily involved in the special education process and identifying students who need special education and help creating individualized education plans for them. Um, I also provide, you know, general supports for behavior, social emotional supports for the classroom and individual counseling. But the main thing is that it can really look different depending on your school, depending on district, depending on, you know, who, what other staff the school has, because my Mm -hmm. role has looked much more mental health focused when we don't have a school counselor, when we don't have um, mental health therapist that can help students. And then that becomes more of my role. But if we have a, a really good mental health team, I don't really, I'm not super involved in that. If we have a behavior support person, I don't do as much behavior. When we don't, I do a lot of behavior. So kind of depends. So right now I do a lot of behavior support, but also special education support as well. I think that's a really important thing for, you know, school psychologists, but really related service personnel in general, because I initially, you know, was doing a lot of mentoring for SLPs in the language and literacy space. And a lot of times they would say, what is my role? And so obviously I could say, here's a framework and here's a starting point, but I can never really definitively be like, you do this and your special ed teacher does this and the psychologist does this. I can't do that because I don't know the context of your team. You have to figure out like what what does this child need who are my team members what are the resources available and how do we as a team divvy up all these responsibilities that whole concept is just i think it's probably i mean maybe it happens a little bit more with school psychologists just because it's it's a different role than slps slps a lot of times it is a lot more direct therapy um but yeah i mean that whole concept i think is really important for the whole team to know Oh, yeah. I think, I mean, I I would say probably anybody that works in a school kind of deals with this to some degree because, you know, we're all, there's so many different needs and so many different things that schools are expected to support with nowadays. It kind of depends on like where your interest and strength lies and you can take on the, the roles that you find more interest or you have more experience and expertise in, and then, you know, get support from other team members for like Mm -hmm. the areas that you're not interested in or you're you don't have as much experience with and it's kind of like you know we're all kind of navigating that together to see how the puzzle 
fits together using our, you know, titles and background knowledge, but also, you know, like just using our relationships to get to know what is this person naturally better at and wants to do and how can I kind of fit in with that team? Oh, that's, that's so important because if you're in multiple buildings, you have to be able to adapt to, you know, what, what your administrator's leadership style is, um, what the, what the teachers, you know, how they like you to interact with them and share information with them. You know, some teachers are all about like, come into my classroom and do what, you know, like, or, or sometimes they're like, just tell me what to do. And sometimes it's more like, okay, why do you want to come into my room? It's a little bit different depending on what they know about you, what past experiences they've had working with the special ed team. Like if they had a bad experience and you walk in, it's like, oh, they're associating you with that when you have nothing to do with that. And you just don't, you really have to read the room so much. Absolutely, Yeah. And that's one of the things um, I try to navigate when I'm in a new school, new district is kind of like, you know, I ask questions about what the person in my role did before that they liked or what you wish they did do and kind of figure out, like you were saying, you know, their past experience with people in my role. Um, And then also, you know, like I've had special education teachers who love running IEP meetings. They facilitate Mm -hmm. it. That's where their strength is and they are totally comfortable with it. And I've had some that say, you know what, I would really appreciate it if you took over um, and I take notes and, you know, whatever. So it's kind of like, yeah, you get to know each team and, and see what they're used to, what they like, what they don't like. And try to negotiate with them what makes the most sense. Yeah. What you feel comfortable too. It's not all about them too. It's, you know. Right. Yeah. I think you have to know how to ask for what you want as well. I think that's something that is, people are always so frustrated because they feel like, you know, I think everybody on the team feels like, I just wish I had more time with my students. I wish my caseload was smaller. And like, just the idea that maybe you can pull your resources and use your team members to delegate. I don't think that's something, you know, like principals probably have some training in that. Maybe maybe the, the leadership training for the administrators, maybe they cover that. At least some of the leadership training that I've done has talked about that, but I haven't really seen a lot of that for the clinicians and the related service providers. And it's like, well, I think you probably can, you know? Yeah, I don't know if anyone, I mean... I'm actually curious if anyone gets like explicit training in that. I just have always kind of, it's just been about like building relationships for me. Relationships Mm -hmm. are like the most, I'd say it's the most important aspect of any of our jobs because you can have all the knowledge in the world and, you know, all the training in the world. And if you don't get along with people, you're not going to, I mean, kids with kids too, not just your coworkers, you know, relationships are essential. And so I think just, I don't know. I feel like I've I've just kind of it's either been natural to me or I've picked up how to do it over time right. being yeah. in my role. How you have those conversations, how you build those relationships with people, how you navigate who's doing what. Mm-hmm. Do you do you have a lot of conversations in online forums? Are there a lot of Facebook groups, online communities for school psychologists or cuz there's a lot for SLPs. I'm curious how that is for you. Um, you know, I don't really use Facebook anymore, but Facebook was like the kind of 
online community where those were most I there's a few for psychologists that I I've been on and I'll check Facebook every once in a while and see what people have written um but you know I do think that Instagram is more just like individual conversations with the creator that's like talking about yes yeah so I have definitely sure. much more one-on-one and that's kind of like my vision for my um, Instagram account was to try to facilitate more of those group conversations. And it's a little tricky on Instagram, I will say like Facebook, you have that wall and someone can like post a question and everyone can respond, respond, mm-hmm. respond, respond. Instagram, it's not as like conducive to that, but right. I'll try to like post a story or post a like question box and then, you know, have a conversation that way where I'll post people's answers on my story or tell everybody to respond to something in the comments of a video I've made and then hopefully facilitate other people responding to each other. Um, That's always been my vision and my dream for kind of my Instagram account, but I don't really think that that is, Instagram's not really set up for that in a way that like Facebook was. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes people have, and I actually, um, in one of my business courses, they said, if you do a Facebook group, you can make it so that only admins can post. So it kind of mimics that same thing, but it's weird. Cause it's like people go onto a platform expecting a certain thing. So it's just different, you know, like the conversations yeah. are just different. So when you've been doing that, I, you know, I imagine you you started putting information out there, the conversations start happening. What kinds of things came up as far as questions or things that surprised you that people thought as you were doing that? You know, I have a lot of you know, uh, psych- school psychologists that are still in training that send me questions or, you know, ask like comment on my things. I have a lot of parents what the thing that's surprising is sometimes I'll put something out there that I don't even think is controversial. Like I had this one, I thought, okay, this is like a very specific example, but I thought I was doing this like great thing, helping school psychs that have this issue because we get, and I'm sure as like an SLP, you got this too, where there's, um, an outside clinician. Mm -hmm. Um, in my case, it's, it was usually like their pediatrician, um, sending a letter directly to the school saying, you know, they, they, I'm requesting an IEP for this student or, you know, a prescription, a prescription for an IEP. And so I thought for me, I'm always like, okay, I want to get the root to the root of the issue with this because, you know, school psychs among ourselves, we always talk about how this is a really frustrating experience because you can't write a prescription for an IEP. That's just not how the um, process works. We have to do our own evaluation and you know, it does cause some confusion because parents think like, okay, here's a prescription. I give it to the school. They fill the prescription. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. And so it does, we come up against this kind of like frustration from parents when we have to explain, you know, actually there's a process, you have to wait a little bit, whatever. Um, and I just wanted to like fix that because, yeah. you know, I, and so I've always called the the doctor and just said, Hey, I got your um, prescription. Can I, I like, do you mind, are you open to hearing kind of how the process works? Um, whatever. And so I gave this example of what I say when I call the doctors and I just got just like, you know, different doctors and parents 
kind of, this is like my, my worst kind of feedback on the video. And they're like, oh, you're so conceited thinking you're, you can tell wow. the doctor what to do, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, oh, dang. Like, you know, I thought I was helping other psychs. Like, here's a little, uh, example of a script to say, <laughs> but whatever. So I, I mean, there's like people that misunderstand. So that was like the surprising aspect to me, but overall, like I always, um, I, I have really good conversations with people and I'm always open to hearing their perspective, even if it's not the same as mine. Um, but that was, yeah, that was like the most surprising thing that happened since I started my account. Betsy, that is a great story because number one, I, know exactly what you mean with the the frustration of here's a script you have to do it because I've had parents specifically ask their doctors for that and they're like well it's a doctor that you have to listen to the doctor and it's like no I mean I think that's great that you are proactively calling the doctor you did exactly what you were supposed to do in a diplomatic way I think sometimes things get lost in translation with short videos you know like totally but um the other thing is I do think Sometimes there were situations where we had to have a script for for Medicaid billing in Illinois. That's how it works. But yeah, like there's so many nuances with that. And yeah, oh my gosh, I I just can think of so many situations where I'll read something and be like, what? I don't agree with that. But then, you know, if I know that person and I've already talked to them, I have, I offer, you know, way more grace because I'm like, okay, well, they probably didn't mean that they probably, I have this other context because I know how they practice, you know, but if it's just a random person who's seeing your reel for the first time and they don't know you, like, (laughs) I don't think they, you know, they don't prepare you for that kind of thing in your training. And I, oh my gosh, that happens all the time online where it's like, whoa, Uh, what's going on here? Yeah. And then also another point that you made me think of too, is that, and I've gotten much better. I learned this really quickly, but, you know, with special education, like we were saying before, you know, it could look very different in different districts and different states. And so I'll share some information and say like, this is the process, even like I'm thinking for like legal timelines, for example. And then I'll have someone from Texas saying, that's not how it works. You know, like we do it this way. I think like I've, I've gotten much better of saying like, you know, this is how it is in California. It might be different. And like you oh, still yeah. have those people mm-hmm. that are confused and say like, no, that's not how it is. But I think, um, you know, it's, I I'm always open to learning about different States and it's actually been really helpful for me because we get kids from other States. And so it's good to know like how things differ. And now I'm way more aware of the fact that like, laws are different in different states and processes are different in different states. So oh, that was yeah, that's another so surprising thing. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like, I, I think I, I had that too, where, you know, I'm very familiar with Illinois and then it's just, it's different for, um, I think that sometimes people don't realize where it's the federal guideline and then the state has their guideline and then your district has their guideline. And usually what happens is that every time you get closer to the more local you get, it actually gets stricter. People don't realize that it works that way, that the federal is usually the least stringent because Mm -hmm. a lot of times districts will try to, they want to try to cover their bases. So they're like, let's make sure that we're compliant. So, you know, that's what I've experienced sometimes in Illinois where it's like, 
the district is telling you, or even just an administrator is like, you have to do it this way. And I'm like, no, I don't. But yeah, I understand that from a leadership perspective, you do have to tell people to do it a certain way. So I'm wondering if you have ever experienced people, um, and this is probably hard to tell because of what you just mentioned with states being different, where people are like, I have to do it this way. My principal tells me I have to do it this way, where I'm like, do you really, or do you just think that you have to do it that way? Do you ever experience people who maybe don't realize that they have more um, autonomy than they realize? Yeah. I mean, I do. The thing that popped in my head when you were saying that was like behavioral things or, Uh you know, like the... Maybe this is more of a specific situation, but where, you know, they are got directives from someone higher up in the Mm -hmm. district or their principal or something of like, you need to have every kid, you know, sitting in their chair doing this, whatever. And I come in and say, you know, like there can be some flexibility. Here's alternate things to try. And, Mm -hmm. you know. I'm thinking of like a a specific kid in my head where it's like, you know, if you know they have some difficulties behaviorally with like staying with the group and sitting in a chair or whatever, and you have like an alternate seating for them. And, you know, I've had teachers before say like, I don't want someone to walk into my room from the district or from admin and see that like I'm not having the same expectations for that kid. And and Mm -hmm. I'm going to be the one that looks bad if the kid is not with the class. And so I always, I, I try to navigate that in a way that like respects maybe what they've been told, but also respects what I think is best for, um, you know, students, because we don't, if we know something is, they're not ready for something or something's going to cause a meltdown, then we need to be a little bit more flexible with them than having, you know, it look a certain way for. Right. Oh yeah. That's a big one. Well, and I think that a lot of times people are, it's either they don't understand what's really going on with the behavior, like what's the external, what's internally going on. But then also they're, you know, like rightfully so concerned about their, their job, you know, like they're, they feel like they're not going to get support to do this strategy and how is it going to look? So, I mean, what do you think, like, what do you do in that situation where, they're worried about getting administrative support for something like that. You know, <clears throat> it's difficult to navigate that because, you know, on one hand, your administration, it's their school, they're in charge. You don't want to ever, you know, go against them in a way that's <laughs> like going to hurt your relationship. Right. But also, you know, again, what I said, relationships are the most important. I think it involves kind of, a discussion with mm-hmm. your administrator, uh, probably not on the spot or in, oh, like, yeah. in front of anybody, but just say, hey, this is where I'm coming from with this. Like, I, I know that you all there because administrators have pressure from people mm-hmm. above them, too. Mm-hmm. So it's like, you know, I need to be more open to understanding why they're enforcing the things that they're enforcing, because maybe it there's an explanation for it that I haven't even thought of. So I think like going and having a conversation and just like being curious about where it's coming from for them. And Mm -hmm. then, you know, hopefully having them be open to where it's coming from, for me, from my perspective. And at the end of the day, 
I always like this, this feels true in my heart. And I always want to believe this, that like no one, everybody that is in education has a heart for doing what's best for kids. Mm-hmm. And so if you can find a way to like meet there with someone um, and just really focus on the kid and doing what's best for the kid um, and try to, you know, find, find your way back to that. Um, mm-hmm. People are a little bit more open to hearing different ideas. Yeah. I just don't think you can go wrong with giving the person the benefit of the doubt and assume that they like there's an objection that they have to what you're saying that maybe you don't know about. And if you can work through that, that maybe you can get closer to being on the same page. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's kind of where I come from with it. And obviously it doesn't always, you know, go as easily as I hope. But, you know. That's a. It sometimes turns into like an ongoing discussion and negotiation, and you know, feeling each other out and how to yeah. work together. Yeah, that can be hard. Where it's like sometimes you have to just settle for the small wins. That's yeah, yeah <laughs> that's hard. Okay, so on the topic of um, behavioral things and um, sitting still in your classroom and all of that. I know that you've talked a little bit about things like whole body listening. So can you share your thoughts on the you know, pros and cons of that strategy and, and just, you know, your experiences with that? Yeah. Um. So as like a former teacher, I totally learned about whole body listening and it mm-hmm. like intuitively, you know, makes sense. You know, if you want someone to be listening, you uh, assume that their eyes are going to be on you and not like mm-hmm. looking around the room and that they're going to be seated and you know, all of the things that whole body listening tried to show are external indicators of one paying attention and actually listening. Um, But then, you know, as I started learning more about it, and I have family and friends that do have ADHD. Mm -hmm. And it's like hearing personal accounts from people really helps you change your mind because they're like, if I'm actually looking at you, it's harder for me to pay Mm -hmm. attention. And so I heard that from a lot of people. And so I'm like, oh, it kind of makes more sense to listen to the person that actually is experiencing this and, you know, take like their word seriously. And uh, unfortunately, like we listen to older people a lot more than we listen to children, but, and there might be more articulate about what's going on. And so a kid can say, you know, like I am listening Mm -hmm. and you're like, I don't believe you. Um, but yeah, plenty of people listen better when they're not looking, when they're fidgeting with something, when mm-hmm. they're you know, walking around pacing. And we give that um, grace to adults. Like, I I mean, adults pace around when they're on the phone all the time or, you know, like they, they do different things to accommodate their movement needs and things like that. So, yeah, I definitely am against one way of listening for people and also using only external factors to see that someone is listening because it's not, it doesn't look the same for everybody. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, that was something that was used. There was the, um, they called it the slant Mm -hmm. method. There was, that was something that was used when I was in the schools and You know, I think that to just mention to someone, these are ways that people, these are cues that some people might look at, you know, to tell if you're listening. 
But, you know, tell people why, you know, these are things that people might expect. And these are some ways that a lot of people use to show that they're listening and understand, help them to understand how it might appear to somebody else, but also give them other options so that they can really understand why they're doing that to begin with. So they can kind of choose what works for them. Because I think that when you just try to if you do try to teach whole body listening or the external things and people don't know why they're doing it, it doesn't actually achieve the concept of listening anyways. And they don't know why they're doing it. So sometimes they don't even know when to apply it. You know, totally. it's like, do I do my, my, you know, eye contact now and then they're looking at you and it feels unnatural because they don't even know why they're doing it. So I mean, well, and that's another, it's another big thing that I think a lot about (laughs) is about like, what is the why behind this? And if you can't see, if you are honest with yourself and it's more just about like compliance, you know, like I want you to do this because I said so. Um, and because like that, like, you know, this is what I believe you should be doing. Then it's, you know, is that really important? Um, I think at the end of the day, we want kids to be learning. And so they learn if they're learning best by, you know, playing with something while they're listening, if if you ask them, you know, what you said or check to see if they know how to follow the directions for the activity and they are able to, then it's like, my goal is for you to do the work. My goal is for you to understand. And so my goal is not for you to look at me. So, yeah. mm-hmm. you know, asking yourself, is this is this ask, what's the why of this ask compliance or for actual necessity for learning? Yeah. And I think the more, like if the child knows that some people look, will use eye contact to show that they're listening, then eventually they're going to be able to tell somebody, you know what, like I'm listening to you, but I focus better if I do this other thing over here. So they know to how to navigate that situation and advocate for themselves because they understand. You know? Oh my gosh. That is like, I, I think that's like the most awesome thing ever when kids are able to say stuff like that. And so I think that would be, and and to your point too, it's like, okay, this is um, what people might expect from you. This is what their reaction might be if you're not doing it. So there's some good that comes out of awareness of like, you're going to come across people that expect this of you. Yes. Yeah, I think totally. this is the right thing to do. And that doesn't necessarily mean they have to, but they should be aware of that. And then right. they can learn to advocate, like you said, of saying like, hey, I'm going to be, you know, drawing while you talk, but I, I'm i going to be listening. I hope that's okay with you or, you yeah. know, just heads up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's the key because I think if you just, if you really, the where the concern comes from the other side, which is why people want you to do it is, well, they're not going to learn. They're not going to have an awareness and they're not going to know how to learn, you know, what things they do need to be doing to actually listen. So if you can at least explain, you know, the perspective of others and all of that, then they can figure it out. So Yeah. And I have gotten that feedback too. I've done a few videos um, around that. And you do get those people that say that, like, you know, we're making kids soft. We can't expect the world to be this way. Like they're going to be people that judge them. There's going to be people that have these expectations and they're not going to be able to get that job or they're not going to be able to like participate in this activity if they're just allowed to do whatever. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, I mean, 
definitely I am I, like, you know, I get those comments. I'm like, oh my God, you don't understand. But you know, yeah. I, oh, yeah. you, I do have, you do have to listen to that because that yeah. is, it is a concern and it's something that we should not be blind to because that's how some people do think. And we want our kids to be prepared to, to know that that, that, that that's a possibility. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think it's more about adaptability and choice. You know, when you make it about that and not about compliance, then at least it puts it, it gives them, you know, the, the, the power to figure out how to navigate the situation, which, you know, if we actually want them to apply the skill in whatever situation it's appropriate, then that's, what's going to have to happen anyways, (laughs) for them to navigate that. So, um, okay. So one thing that I thought would be interesting to talk about would be just the idea of speaking multiple languages and language confusion. And should you, if you're in an English speaking school system, you know, have to speak English all the time when you're learning. And so what are some misconceptions around that? And how do you navigate those situations? Oh man, this is like one of like my passions as a bilingual school psychologist is, you know, busting these myths. And I, I want to just make a note that like, you know, I'm an advocate for for um, students' bilingualism and bilingual education. There's so many other wonderful resources too um, from people that are by bilingual and bicultural. I myself, I'm not bicultural, but I always encourage people to look at accounts that have lived experiences too. But I'm just here as an ally to support and use the knowledge I've gained. Um, the thing is, is that I don't think people quite understand how damaging it is to say that um, a student should be speaking more English so they don't fall behind. Like, and so that's a perspective I I try to pass along. It's like, you know, if you're, I have parents of my students that don't speak English. So if you're telling that parent, their kid can't speak their native language, you're basically telling them that like that you don't think that their culture is important, that Mm -hmm. they want to weaken their connection with their family, you know, if the kid is losing their Spanish or whatever language they speak at home or they their family speaks, then they're not having that that strong as strong of a bond. There's so much that's passed through language that's not just communication too. It's your history, it's your culture, it's your traditions. Um, there's so many kids that can't speak to their relatives anymore because they lose their their first language. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I just, I don't think that English should be put on this pedestal that it's, you know, so much more important. I mean, you can have both languages. What's yeah. then the thing that's, it's really, I think pretty gross is that it's like someone that's learning a second language as like an additional skill is seen as this, like, wow, you are so great. You know, like you have this extra competency that you can bring to the job. But what about these kids that are like born with the two languages? And it's just like, that's not seen as this extra asset and skills. It's seen as, oh, you know, that's a nuisance. Get rid of that. So you can be better at English. Like that's, that doesn't seem very fair either. But yeah, more importantly, or not more importantly, but additionally, you know, the skills that you are practicing when you're 
at home in your language, that's transferable to English as well. Like if you're reading in Spanish and you're asking comprehension questions and you're learning about, um, sorry, I'm kind of going off on a tangent. No, no, this is good. I think it's a good point to make. People don't realize that at all. Yeah. Um, I'm thinking right now. So I have this wonderful friend named Deandra who I've met on Instagram and her account is bilingual play date. And she and I created a video together. That's actually outlines. I'm trying to remember all this, the four specific things we said, but we went back and forth and shared reasons why you should not say to someone stop speaking your native language so you can learn English. I wish I had it in front of me so I could tell you the four things that we said, but I encourage you to look at that video and I'll, yeah, I can we'll link to it in the show notes yeah. so they can, they can see. But I mean, you were saying how if you're reading in Spanish, you're still learning skills that would transfer to English yes. and strategies and, you know, all of that. And vocabulary too. Yeah. It's like, you know, um, there's like bridging skills. And so if, if the way a lot of people learn a second language is by relating it to the skills they already have in their first language. And mm -hmm. so the vocabulary you're building, the, um, the skills you're building in your native language only strengthens your ability to bridge that knowledge to the second language. Yeah. And so your skills, the more skills you have in your first language that can't hurt you. Mm -hmm. I just wonder, because I think I know, you know, people who speak more than two languages, I imagine it, that just makes you, you know, just from a neurological perspective of, you know, flexibility and learning all the different syntax and, you know, grammatical structures. I mean, that just seems like, I don't know, I hate to use this word, but like the ultimate superpower, I feel like calling it a superpower actually doesn't do justice to what it actually is. but. Yeah. <laughs> it's just crazy to me that like this is even a discussion of in like the United States because you go pretty much like anywhere else and it's like of course you'd learn another language. I know. Oh that's my gosh. Crazy. Honestly, that's the craziest thing to me that we even have to defend, you know, someone having more than one language and that being potentially not a good thing. Like why that doesn't make any logical sense. You leave the United States and people speak, you know, multiple. Uh, I actually, and as an example of this, so I used to work at a boarding school. It was an international boarding school in Switzerland. And I spent four summers there and there are kids from all different countries. And one of the kids said to me, he was like seven. I'll never forget this. He was like, wow, your English is so good. <laughs> and I was like, oh yeah, it's, my first language. And at that point I had studied some Spanish, but I definitely wouldn't have said I was bilingual. And so it was like a seven-year-old and he was like, oh yeah, you know, I really want my English to be better. Here he is speaking to me in like perfect English. And I was like, oh, what other languages do you speak? And he had like seven other languages and it was just like a non-thing for him. It was just like, of course he was from, um, I, I believe it was Azerbaijan. And so it's like oh when you have, when you live in a smaller country surrounded by other countries that speak different languages, it's just, you know, you need to learn Russian, you learn Ukrainian, you learn English, you learn French. And it's just something that's like a natural thing and people are able to do it because it's just an expectation. 
Um, and it allows them to, to learn and connect with people from different cultures and different countries. And I just think it's so silly that not, and not even silly. I, I actually use a stronger word, but like, you know, for us in the United States to even question it being a thing to have more than one language. I just, I can, so I, I took Spanish one and two in high school and then I quit and I really regret it. And I remember my Spanish teacher being like, you're quitting before it's even getting good. And then I, I didn't get to go on the Spain trip, which was Spanish three. And then my younger sisters both went and uh, my my sister who lives in California, um, who is a, she's a school counselor. Um, she's been, you know, stay at home mom, but she's going back to work. And she actually got her job because the district that she worked at was 40% Hispanic. So I definitely, that's one of my regrets if I could write a letter to my younger self is that I would have stuck with it. And the Duolingo that I'm doing is not cutting it, <laughs> but it's just crazy. Like we, we went to Europe this last year and we were in Paris and the table next to us. So we were speaking English because I, I know, you know, barely any French. So obviously I couldn't even function, you know, without speaking English and luckily Paris, everybody speaks English. So, you know, that was pretty easy to navigate, but the, the, the couple next to us, they spoke English and Italian and the waiter spoke French and English. So they were like, they had to be like, which languages do we speak in common? You know? And that was just so cool. How they're like, it's great. I saw that all the time at that boarding school. It was like actually, honestly, a beautiful thing to just yeah. when people are discovering, you know, what languages they can speak in and, and, you know, choosing from a number of languages they speak in. And it's all that's what I think. I mean, this is a whole different topic, but I think that that's what the United States gets wrong in mm-hmm. learning languages is it's just like. It's about communication and it's about valuing the relationships with people from different cultures. And when you think about it that way, like the where it really clicked for me is actually at this boarding school, some of my favorite people um, were from Spanish speaking countries. And it's like, I want to get to know them. I want to talk to them. I want them to know me. I want to be able to have like actual conversations and not just like, you know, little you know, phrases back and forth that I remember from school. And yeah. so when it comes to like, to actually getting people to reach a level of of fluency in a language, it's like, to get to that point, you have to have that underlying um, understanding that it's valuable to yeah. connect with people from mm-hmm. a different culture. And I think, you know, even this discussion around whether or not you know, they should even speak their language and like get rid of it so they can speak English is, I think, probably the root of the problem here. Why we leave high school after we've taken years of another language still not speaking it because there's this like pervasive, really gross, like feeling that it's not important. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I I wish, you know, again, I'm like, it's, I'm just in awe at how people can do that. I'm like, how does your brain do that? You know, (laughs) I'm hoping that I'm in my forties and I still can't really speak Spanish very well. I'm hoping that there's a way to learn how to do it. Like how, okay. So I have a couple questions on this. I know we're totally going down a rabbit hole. So (laughs) how do people like, if, if you're somebody who wants to learn another language, 
So I know there's babble and Duolingo and those are, it's, it's good to learn vocabulary, but you can't actually speak it if you just stay on the app. Like, how do you actually learn to really speak it? Honestly, like the, the real answer to that is like, necessity. (laughs) I I really think and that's why people say they, you know, they go live somewhere else and that's Mm -hmm. when it works for them. I think for me, um, and this was the same thing, my mom too, she is just like me in the sense that we get really into like, wanting to be perfect about oh, things. Yeah. Uh, perfect conjugation. Which which tense do I use? Like, what's the vocab word for that? Oh, I can't say that sentence because I don't remember the exact word for that. And you get really in your head because in school, that's what you're graded on. That's like what becomes important. Um, and so you get so technical that you forget that language is about communication. Mm-hmm. And if you think about it, when you're talking to someone whose English is not their first language or they're struggling a little bit to communicate, you understand what they're trying to say and you help yeah. them. It's like a back and forth where you're like, you offer them a word or you offer like, is this what you meant by that? And then it's a back and forth. So you actually don't need to be perfect because before you speak, it's actually a hindrance to that communication if you're trying to be perfect. And so when you're in a situation where it's necessity, you realize that, okay, I can't wait until I have the perfect sentence to say. I just have to try to do this dance with this person and hope they understand me and hope they work with me. Um, And so yeah, I'd say like that's that's that was the key for me is just like Mm -hmm. the struggle. And being okay with the struggle and being okay with looking like you don't know what you're saying and, you know, being okay with being humbled at the fact oh, yeah. that you not do that perfect, but you try again and, and you just try to communicate. I think the idea of being humbled and trying to speak another language, it's just, I think that's a really good experience for people who, on. Um, You know, like, so if I'm talking to somebody who doesn't speak English as a first language and they're speaking pretty well to me, like I'm impressed with them and I'm thinking, wow, you, you know, like this is pretty good. I'm, it's something that is not, I'm not going to think less of them because they don't have perfect grammar. You know, Mm -hmm. I'm probably not even going to think anything of it. And if somebody does think that, I just think it's such a good experience to be on the other end of that to be like, this is what it's like. And this is how hard it is. So, you know, I think that maybe having more experiences like that, if if you're a person who thinks, oh, we should just make him speak English, you know, I mean, yeah, just from yeah, the perspective that, of it. That's such the point too. Like, I think on Deandra and my video, there was people like that. And it's like, you know, clearly you haven't put yourself in this situation because you don't know how, what you're saying that a person should do, how hard that is. And I'll never forget in my grad program, I was trained to be a bilingual school psychologist. And part of that was we did um, immersions over the summer to work at a school in Mexico, in different places in Mexico. And my first summer was like, the the hardest mm-hmm. because I was living with um, a Mexican family. I was working in a school and, you know, we were taught, we were expected to, you know, speak in Spanish the whole time. And the people, the other people in my grant were, most of them were native Spanish speakers or their Spanish was better than mine. Um, and I just cried. <laughs> I cried every day. And I was just like, I, I think someone at one point told me like, 
you're never going to learn if you don't do, if you don't speak in Spanish, because when we were not working or we were not with our family, I would, I would default back to English with mm -hmm. my friends because oh, they spoke yeah. English. And I just remember when that person told me, you're never going to learn Spanish if you keep talking in English. I was like, oh my God, that is how we treat people that are learning English. Mm -hmm. And obviously, you know, this was for a very limited time. It was only over the summer. And I was just so exhausted and crying every day and like beating myself up. And the people that are in the United States that are, you know, learning a second language and they don't have a break from it, oh, you know, yeah, like they have hard. that year after year and they get message after message of that. And so like, I will never say that I can fully empathize with them because mine was just like a small, small snippet of what they go through. But that really changed my heart completely from that experience. And I'm like, oh, I, I think I kind of get it now, like how damaging that is because what an, what an awful thing when you feel like you're trying your best, you're exhausted and someone just dismisses you like that. Like you're never going to learn if you don't, you know, talk in Spanish. <laughs> I just, yeah, I can't imagine. I, I could just think, you know, at the end of the day, when you are like, let me just speak English for a few minutes. <laughs> yeah. And I, do you ever, did you ever watch Modern Family? I don't. Oh, okay. Well, it's, there's a character there, Sofia Vergara. She's from Colombia. And she was like, they were like in an argument and, you know, she has a, like an accent when she speaks and, you know, sometimes she gets her words mixed up, you know, and then I think there's this one quote where she was like, you don't even understand how smart I am in Spanish. <laughs> and I, think, like, I always remember that because that's, you know, that's how people feel. It's like, I'm so funny in my native language. I'm so smart in my native language. And you have no idea because you're, you're looking down on me like I don't have these skills, but really I have these skills in a second language. What you only have one language. Yeah. I saw some quote somewhere that was like, if someone has an accent, like they know at least, you know, one more language than you do or something like that. Well, and it, it gets into the whole um the issue of dialect. Um mm -hmm. that that's a big thing too with you know, we see that a lot in speech pathology where it's, you know, people are pronouncing different sounds a certain way, but when it translates to another language, sometimes they don't have that, you mm. know, like they, it doesn't, that sound doesn't exist in their native language. So yeah, maybe they might correct it, but at the same time, it's, it's part of their accent. So it's, to me, it's like, do you really want to take that away from them, you know, or, you know, other things that don't have to do with, with learning a second language. Okay. So I had one more, uh, question, just random question about, uh, Spanish dialects. I would, I, mean, I think maybe I do want to ask a little bit more about, um, the service delivery, but, um, I'm curious how you navigate the fact. So obviously within the United States, that's something that we deal with where it's, there's all these different dialects in English, when you're learning Spanish, I mean, aren't there's all different dialects where it's like in when you're in Spain, there's all different, um, you know, there's Catalan and there's all this other, you know, like how how do you navigate all the different dialects and try to learn it? So, I mean, yeah, that's that's like for me makes me have like the most imposter syndrome out of anything. Is <laughs> yeah, like, you know. Spanish, there's so many different Spanish speaking countries and their Spanish in one, like 
you know, one area of the world can be very, very different and very, very different vocabulary, very, very different way of pronouncing things. And so when I present myself as speaking Spanish, and then I talk to someone from a country where I'm not super familiar with their way of speaking Spanish, I feel like, do I even speak Spanish? You know, I don't don't know. But then, you know, I'll just use another example of this. You know, at the the boarding school, one of my my closest friends was from Mexico. And we worked with this one... um, um, this one teacher that was from, I think he's from like Scotland. And so his English was like, oh, it had a yeah. strong accent. And then he would, especially when he was like, when we would go out and he would be a little bit drunk, it was like, you can't understand a lot of what he's saying. So my friend who was from Mexico was like, you know, I thought I was really good at English, but I don't understand a word he's saying. And I had to turn to her and said, you know, I don't even understand what he's saying. Yeah. And she's like, oh, really? Phew. I'm like, I'm relieved because I thought I was bad at English. And, you know, like, so it's similar to that. Like, I think, mm-hmm. again, you know, the humility of it being like, you know, oh, I'm not familiar with that word. Or, you know, can you explain to me what you mean by that? Like, we do that all the time in English for people that are from different parts of the United States, even. Mm-hmm. So I think it's like, you know, same goes with with Spanish. And it's also knowing your community. If you work in an area, you know, that there's people that speak Spanish, it's good to know where, where they're, they're come from, where they come from, where their family comes from and get to know a little bit more about the culture of that country or place specifically and understanding and just getting more familiar with their Spanish. And then over time you can build that understanding and vocabulary. I think that's also just it's kind of dismissive when it's like, oh, all Spanish is the same, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, that must be really frustrating for people because when you look at it in, from that perspective, it's like, of course, English, you know, the English of somebody from Scotland is different than the English of someone from Chicago. And for us, that's, oh, that's normal. But then when you look at it from that perspective, I think it, well, what it also does is it makes you see how hard it is where it's like, all right, you're learning a new language and then there's all the dialect, you know, could you, I can't imagine, you know, learning Spanish and then being in a community where it's like, all right, I finally feel like I'm hanging on. And then now we have this other dialect and it's like, ah, yeah, I, <laughs> well, I have the imposter syndrome when trying to order at a restaurant. So, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, and it's again, it's like perpetually just being curious and humble and, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, inquisitive and, and, you know, learning and, and not dismissing people because and and it's I've heard from like, uh, plenty of people that, you know, they think they're like people dismiss their, their dialect or their, their version of, you know, their language. Yeah. less than in some way, because it's not what you learned or it's not what you're used to. And that's just not what we should be messaging to people. Yeah. I mean, the idea of, of code switching where it's like, yes, again, it kind of goes back to the listening thing where it's like, yes, you should know what the expectations are. You should understand why those expectations are there, but that also doesn't mean that you have to just comply with everything. Like there's a choice. Totally. Yeah. And that's like, oh, there's a a term for it. And you as a speech language pathologist definitely know it. And it's like at the top of my head right now, but where you're using the correct kind of like language or like type of speaking for the context. What is that called? Code switching. 
No, I, I want to say it starts with a P. Well, there's so there's the perspective taking stuff when you're talking about executive functioning and reading the room too. Like to me, that's kind of the this. So I obviously there's way more layers when you're talking about speaking a different language, but with the the listening and the eye contact, to me, it, teaching perspective taking is you know like the solution because if you understand the other person's perspective, then you can kind of choose versus being like this is what we do around here kind of a thing and. Yeah, but um, yeah, yeah. I, I was trying to Google it real quick. Is but it presupposition it, is that what you're looking at for? It's like gonna come to me later. I don't know, but I'll I'll probably wait, mess. Wait, what is it? It's it's you're putting your um no modifying. It's like- yeah, you're modifying either like the formality or like whatever of the way you speak based off of like the context of the situation. Like you'd speak differently at a job interview than you would. Yeah, usually that's, I mean, it's code switching, which, yeah, sometimes it's appropriate where it's you're talking with your friend, it's going to be different than, you know, at a, in an interview where it gets a little problematic is when it's kind of like, well, you have to code switch because your culture is inferior kind of a thing. And that's where it starts to get um, where it's uh, something that had some benefit got used in a way that is actually pretty, you know, dismissive of people's culture. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe it's something else. We'll think of it. I don't know. I don't know where I was going with that one, but I was just, yeah. Like I, I, I like how you tied it back to what we were talking about earlier, where there's nothing wrong with saying like, these are what would be, might be expected in this situation or what people might like find appropriate or inappropriate. Um, but without kind of the pressure to conform, just letting them know what to expect and how they can adjust or how they can advocate for themselves or, you know, in certain situations. Yeah. Yeah. So before we wrap up, I know we've kind of been going for a while. Um, Is there anything else that you can think of that you just wish people knew about you know, service delivery, um, IEP teams working together, like any other hills that you would die on that we haven't talked about before we wrap up? Uh, you know, I just, the I guess the hill I would die on with special education and um, working with families is that it shouldn't, uh, I don't know how I want to say this. Um, I, what I would want to get across is that you know, working together and collaboration is the key to everything. And I think that even on like what I've seen online, it's a lot of um, like, you know, from the parent side, it's like, this is what you do to get the school to listen to what you want or, Mm -hmm. you know, what you think is best for your kid and how to advocate for them and like get around what the school's trying to do. And then, you know, you see from the educator set standpoint for special educators or um, general education teachers, like this is how you deal with parents and like, this is how you get them to <laughs> leave you alone or whatever. <laughs> yeah. it is. I just feel like there's a lot of like division yep. and I just, I just don't think it's helpful for anybody. And it's uh, like very harmful for the kid, which is Mm -hmm. one of the things like I preach the most is it's like, it's all about what's best for the kid and how to, how we can all come together to support them. And 
each person plays such an important role and offers such an important perspective. And, you know, most importantly, the kid also offer, plays the most important role and offers the mm-hmm. most important perspective. And I think yeah. that that gets lost. And that's why um, one of the, the main reasons why I, I created my Instagram account is because I just wanted to come from a place of like, hey, this, I like, here's what I know. Here's my role in the situation. But I also want to hear what you know and what your perspective is in this situation, because that's important. And we all need to work together because all of our goal is to help our kids be successful and for them to learn. So I just, I, yeah, I just, I want to pass along that the school is not the enemy. The parents, not the enemy. The child is not the enemy. And the longer we see it that way, um, the, the worse off we're going to be. Yeah. Love it. Okay. So where can people find out about, um, where to find your information? You know, like let's go through all of the places that people can find you online. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't have like much stuff. (laughs) I just have my, my Instagram account. It's at educationally psyched. And that's where I give most of my information. I also, I have, uh, because I was sharing some of the resources I used, and most of them are pretty specific to like school psychologists, but some are behavior supports. Um, some are just like um, posters that I have ar- around my room. I have one about like executive functioning. They're all like um, educational posters that I put mm-hmm. up. I have that those resources available on my Teachers Pay Teachers page, but that's linked from my Instagram. But yeah, that's where mostly where you can find me. I, I don't have um, a website at this point, but eventually, because I do have my private license, eventually I'm going to do something with that. But that is a project for when I have more space in my life to think about it. <laughs> Great. All right. So we'll, we'll uh, link to your Instagram and you've got your teachers pay teachers and some of your resources linked in your Instagram bio. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. This was fun. It was. Before we wrap up, I wanted to remind you to check the show notes for all of the links that were shared in this episode and where you can connect with Brianna. And also remember that if you want to learn my asset stacking method, if you want to learn how you can strategically create resources that are going to help you to spread your clinical knowledge and better support your caseload, even if you have limited time to collaborate with your team, and even if you have a huge caseload, then definitely check out my 30 skills and tools to foster generalization. All you need to do to download that guide is go to drkarendudekbrannon.com backslash generalization. Remember, it helps me out so much if you rate and review and follow me on the podcast directories. And then finally, feel free to reach out to me if you have a great guest that you would love to see on the show. If you know someone who has shown de facto leadership, who's doing something amazing to support kids, or if you would like to be a guest on the show, then email me at talktome at drkarenspeech.com. For now, we'll wrap up, but thank you so much for listening, and I will see you in the next episode.
Do you want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, improve students' performance on state assessments without just teaching to the test? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com backslash BE to learn how IXL's research-based teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all these goals. That's IXL.com backslash BE. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into the master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out My Flex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flex time without the common challenges. Its intuitive design makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com backslash BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com backslash BE.